Computing Broadcast a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Ever since I was a mid to late 20s adult, I have had an intense interest in the Wild West. I can't give you an exact pinpointed time or location or even why, really, I love the Wild West so much. But I'll give you a couple of things that maybe maybe will give you some insight. Now, when I say the Wild West, this is, you know, the... the Right around the Louisiana Purchase, we're talking about the 1800s, gold prospecting, boom towns, which became ghost towns, cowboys, vigilante justice, the hangings, the gallows, the showdowns at high noon uh, between outlaws and lawmen, the, un- the the lawlessness being overcome, survival on the desert, uh, outlaws themselves, the railroad tycoons riding around on horses all day, saloons, uh, the gambling, the prostitutes, all this type of stuff, it just is, is it, this is the definition of the Wild West. And I think nothing encapsulates all of these types of things better than the personalities that were there writing history. Uh, the, the myths, the legends, the gunslingers, the, the marshals, all these types of people uh, are really what define the Wild West. And it is those personalities that I'm going to get into today with Bill O'Neill, the Texas state historian, the official historian of the great state of Texas, a man who has written, he says in the 40s, book 47 books maybe, right around there, he's got two more that are coming out uh, right at the same time. The man's an absolutely incredible uh, author, prolific in his writing ability. Bill, you're kind of known as the Wild West guy. <laughs> I may I may test your knowledge because I may jump all over the place. So I hope you're ready. Okay. So you're going to embarrass me. No, it's look. It, it's a conversation. <laughs> but I'll, we'll see but what I'll give it a whirl. But I have written widely on on the uh, old west. It's been a, I've I've done forty some odd books, and um, you know, a great many of them have been on different elements of the old west, and and uh, it's something. It's a theme I keep coming back to. My very first book was Encyclopedia of Western Gunfighters. Mm-hmm. and uh, sort of helped make a reputation for me. And um, since then, I've, re- I've c- continued to return to that gunfighter theme because, you know, uh, nothing is more dramatic than life and death conflict. That's true. And, boy, you dress it up in uh, guys in big hats and boots and carrying six guns and Winchesters, you know, <laughs> and there's something, there's a, there's a very strong appeal to a lot of us. Uh, out there, and uh, yeah. so that that has been a really good thing for me. Done a lot of books on blood feuds and things. For instance, I've written a bunch of stuff from Wyoming. It was up there, in fact, just a few few months ago at the 125th anniversary of the Johnson County War. The Johnson County War was that thing that inspired uh, Shane and the Virginian and Heaven's Gate. And all kinds of other stuff. I've done a lot of work in Arizona, Arizona Rangers, uh, Ranger Captain. I did a book on, I probably book, I think the best history book I ever did was on Cheyenne, Wyoming, a wow. biography of Cheyenne, if you will, sure. during its 30 some odd years as a uh, 
uh, you know, as a Western town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the Wild West is very attractive. Um, and it's kind of funny that you built your reputation on gunfighters, whereas a gunfighter's reputation was what they lived by. I mean, it's kind of an yeah, interesting that's, parallel. That's 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 a very interesting comparison. I never had really thought of it that way, but that that's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. And um, I'm the analytical uh, mastermind, Bill. I don't know if you knew that or yeah, not. So I yeah, make there these you comparisons. Go. <laughs> be wise. You got to be, be on your toes. Um, so now, now what, what really drew you to the Wild West? I mean, like, you've kind of dedicated your life to this. It, there must be something going on here. Well, Psychologicals uh, or something, you know. Oh, yeah. My, my great-grandfather um, drove cattle up the Chisholm Trail. Ah. Uh, and we've got a great photo of him with the, with the trail crew. He was just a member of a, of a trail crew. And his, uh, his trail boss was a guy named Pink Higgins. And I've written a biography of Higgins. And uh, Higgins was uh, not only a trail driver, he was a shootist. Uh, he was in the midst of a feud, and he killed his last guy when he was in his 50s. So he was a really tough old bird. And um, and my mother, as a matter of fact, was named after him, uh, not Pink, after uh, after, a great, uh, after my great-grandfather, her grandfather. Uh, his, his name was um, uh, uh, Jesse Standard. And she she was named Jesse Standard, you know, female mm-hmm. version of his name. Right. And I even have a granddaughter named after her. So oh, wow. that name keeps popping up. But in any event, I was fully aware that my great-grandfather had done the real cowboy thing. And then the other part is my that was on my mother's side. My dad um, was the last of eight children, and his mother uh, came to Texas in a wagon train in 1881 when she was seven years old. Wow. And uh, she was certainly old enough to remember it, and she became she married a cotton farmer and gin Wright and uh, my grandfather, and uh, they had eight kids. My dad was the last of the eight, and my my uh, my grandmother lived to be eighty six, and so she told me that story over and over of the wagon train trek, which was the great adventure of her life, you know, mm, yeah. since she was just, you know, farm wife and mother the rest of her life. And uh, so, so there it was on both sides of my family. I did have that old Western thing, cowboys and covered wagons and stuff. Right. Uh, and and I, I never knew my great-grandfather. He died a few years before I did, but I certainly heard plenty about him. And then there was my grandmother telling me this story at her knee, you know, and I, I kept, uh, kept hearing about it. And I was drawn to Western movies and indeed I was, I was raised during the heyday, the mm-hmm. last heyday right, of right. the Western movies. Uh, the, well, the fifties, especially, you know, mm-hmm. I did some really great stuff at that time. And so I was, I was attracted to that stuff like a bee to honey. Mm-hmm. And I had a grandfather. I mean, uh, I had an aunt and uncle who, uh, their sheep ranch was the site of a shooting. My uncle's uh, grandfather had shot a. It was a sheep ranch, actually, and my my my, my uncle's grandfather uh, killed a cowboy right on their range, wow. and that was my favorite place to go when I was a kid because that's where I got to ride horses uh-huh. amongst the cactus and stuff, you know. And so yeah. I I had a repeated sort of a western experience. Uh, there all the time. I was raised in a town of 20,000. But there, you know, every so many weekends when we'd get to go out to the ranch and I'd get to ride horses and stuff. And I'm riding where, you know, this this guy got killed, uh, you know, at a shootout. And 
And so, uh, you know, there was there was a close enough family connection that it that it made it kind of personal to me. And uh, evidently, the appeal did not take much nurturing because I I responded to it. Yeah, you were like boiled in a pot as a youth, was surrounded by uh, Western culture. So I kind of so, yeah. very very much so. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny because like I wasn't at all, um, and I've only just like. You know, as I've gotten older, I've kind of become attracted to different things. You know, like I haven't liked the same thing throughout my entire life. And I've recently become attracted to Westerns in the West. And I don't know if it's because I moved out to L.A. and you're kind of in the middle of the desert. Yeah. I wouldn't call L.A. a Western town, even though it's on the West. And there's tons of towns around here. But it's definitely not a Wild West town anymore. Um, But I think for some reason I'm always attracted to like this harsh struggle of like, you know, survival, really, because the West had really tough conditions. Uh, it was lawless. Uh, you know, everyone, it was really about sort of like really gritty survival, um, kind of the way the desert, um, you know, all the plants that live on a desert are struggling for water, struggling for resources. Everyone's trying to find whatever, you know, whether you're coming out here for a vein of gold to survive oh. on, if you're a cactus. Oh, that's another great comparison, too. That's, that's oh, well, thank you. So. Yeah, well, you give me credit every time you use it in your lectures. Ah, I will. Yeah, you better. <laughs> okay. uh, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like, there, there's, there's like, you know, people are struggling for resources out here. And it's, you know, it, it's the, the age of the man. You know, that's kind of where we get our idea of manhood is from the West, for better or for worse. Um, I, I think it's a fascinating time period, to be perfectly honest with you. Oh, I do, too. You know, it's, it's, it's a great part of the American story. A, part, a big part of it is this. You know, Americans, uh, I mean, English, call, English settlers came, came, came here 400 years ago, you know, in the, in the early 1600s. Jamestown and then the Pilgrims and so mm-hmm. forth. And here we are almost exactly four centuries later. Well, we had a frontier somewhere out west for 300 of those 400 years. Right. And so something, you know, something that happens during three quarters of your existence has to, uh, has to influence you greatly in many, many ways. And uh, in, mm-hmm. in the same way that while my father's been dead some years, well, golly, Pete, he, you know, he was a very strong influence on me for the first 50 some odd years of my life. And I certainly have never forgotten him nor have I shed that influence, and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing mm-hmm. with that frontier experience. Uh, people forget how long we were a frontier nation, again, out there somewhere. If you wanted to go west, if you wanted to go experience frontier, you certainly could. Right. And um, and it was a great place to test yourself. And, um, you know, there is heroism just just in the men, the fact that men and women and children endured the harsh conditions, the hardships, and the dangers. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so true. you didn't, you didn't, you didn't have to fight warriors or anything to be a hero. Just, just simply to endure. Right, to and live. they were aware of that and and proud yeah. of it. You know, to live to a ripe old age of forty five meant you were really living through life. Yeah, you know, yeah, honestly. that's right. Yeah. Well, wow. and so, so, Made it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so when we talk about the Wild West, we're talking about um so this kind of set me down a rabbit hole, but I'm going to I'll try to briefly go through it really quickly. So when we talk about the Wild West and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're the expert. 
But we're really talking, I mean, some people make an argument that it started, you know, in 1789, you know, after the Articles of Confederation, we had the Constitution. As soon as we started moving into and taking the land from the indigenous people, that was really westward expansion. Uh, but I think a more, a more realistic definition would be with the Louisiana Purchase. So when we started moving west of the Mississippi up until 1912, when Arizona was officially a state, um, so I think that was kind of like the early, like the, you know, up until the Civil War, from the Louisiana Purchase to the Civil War, it was probably early West, and then post-Civil War is kind of like the late West. Is that pretty accurate? Well, that's true, but actually, you know, insofar as the West is concerned, frontiering, pioneer conditions, and so forth, the move West actually starts at the start, because you had those, you know, those 13 colonies, and they were on the coast, and you would go to the interior of those colonies, and you experienced hardship, danger from warriors. Um, uh, you experienced that you could hack a farm out of the wilderness. And so we actually had a Western experience, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, from, from day one, from the right. relatively early 1600s. Right. And, and it is those frontier conditions, those pioneering conditions, uh, that we get three full centuries of pioneering. There was always in our mind some kind of a West out there. And your ending point is spot on. Uh, into the early part of the 20th century, about three centuries later, there was still gunfighting going on here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were very isolated cattle ranches, isolated farms here and there across the West, in places like Arizona, indeed. Uh, I did a book about the uh, troubles between the cattlemen and sheep herders, and uh, that kind of trouble went on well into the 20th century, until really about the 1920s. Hmm. And so various frontier conditions that we had been experiencing since the early 1600s were still there in the early 20th century, and and then finally, you know, it it settled out, and, and so finally, people had toothpaste in a tube, you know, right, and right. and uh, and far better transportation and so forth. But for three full centuries of American life, there were frontier conditions out there somewhere, and you could experience those conditions if you chose to. Well, and and, and, and so again, three for three quarters of our life. Yeah. As a people, that's you know, that's 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 a strong influence, and uh, perhaps some of those, a lot of those frontier values are fading now because it's been gone mm-hmm. for a a a, a century. Right. But at the same time, we've never forgotten it. Just as one doesn't, you know, my dad died twenty something years ago, but I've never forgotten him, mm-hmm. nor have I forgotten entirely his influence. Right, and uh, it's it's the same thing. We've never shaken off that frontier, those frontier values, and so forth. Even though they are certainly fading now. Yeah, well, you know, and it's it's this. So this is a really interesting topic that you're talking about here, and and I do promise we'll get into some of the folks here because I, I think that there's a really fun romanticized version of the West that's really interesting, and that I yeah, that I kind of fell in love with, and I really like, and I want to get into. But you know what you're talking about? It, it set me down this weird rabbit hole because in some ways you glo- we not you necessarily, but 
you know, this is a part of our history, but we gloss over this major part. And when you start looking at the individual stories, like if we start talking about like wild, the legend of Wild Bill Hickok, who's always fascinated me, it's a really cool story in an individual when you're on the micro level, you know, and as a historian, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about. As you slowly move out from these individual stories to the westward expansion to see what was going on, as I was trying to like nail down the dates of the Wild West to see what time period we're really talking about, I kind of stumbled across these four maps. And it was really interesting because it talks, you know, 1789 as when it starts out, you know, it's just on the, the colonies on the West Coast. And then it's got maps in between. And you watch as we've slowly basically stolen this land from the people who were here by hook or by crook. And, you know, essentially committed what I would say is one of the greatest tragedies of human existence, uh, which is the genocide of the people who were here. And I don't want to bring this down at all, but I think before we get into the romanticized version, I do want to acknowledge that, you know, this is, while this is a wholly American, this is essentially the creation, the genesis of America. And it's a unique um, time period that is only for America, which is, you know, captivated the world, it is, it is on the death and the carcass of the people who were here that we kind of stole the land from. And I don't want to get away, you know, I want to, I want to mention that. I think that's important. Well, it, it, it is important, of course, but it's important because it, it just goes on and on and on throughout world history. Right, of you course. You know, I mean, uh, all kinds of indigenous peoples have given away before, uh, you, you know, before the march of uh, more advanced cultures. Right. I mean, that's happened everywhere. It's not. It's certainly. It's certainly not unique to America. No, 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 no. It's definitely not. Um, but I think we kind of gloss over it because we're we're taught at an early age that America's the best country on the planet, and you know we forget some of the bad things that we've done. And what's interesting about human beings as a species, uh, which is interesting, you know, the survival of the fittest is always true. Um, but for for human beings and throughout, as you mentioned, throughout world culture, it has always been not who's the most fit to survive in the land, because that would have been the people who'd been here on the land for 200,000 years. But it's always the military might which survived. And this is true in European history, too, um, uh, where, where the, the stronger sword always takes the, the land. That's certainly true. That's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. And again, it's just a pattern that's been repeated since, uh, you know, as long as we've had history. Of course. Yeah, of course. And, uh, recorded, you know, by, and by history, I mean recorded history. Right. And uh, it's gone on over and over and over. Pick your continent. Right. No, <laughs> exactly. Know, it, it certainly happened here. And uh, yes, we've added a lot of color to it and so forth here um, uh, through motion pictures, etc., and through the romanticization of, 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 of these kinds of things. If you look at a John Ford movie, you said you've done lots of Western movie looking. I do. He, yeah. had, he had a wonderful way of uh, adding the legend to the harsh facts of, say, cavalry versus warriors or whatever, whatever it might be, uh, and, um, and whatever part of the legend it might be. And you listen to the music that he had, the background music in his movies and the humor he associates with it and the camaraderie and so forth. And the romanization is he's reflecting that romantic aspect of it that other Americans just uh, experienced. And they tended mm -hmm. to gloss over, you know, you look, 
I'm sure my great grandfather, boy, I'm sure that was a hard old way to earn money, you know, driving those herds right. up a dusty, dusty trail for really, really minimal pay. But looking back on it, you know, hey, he was a cowboy and he wore the boots and spurs and hats and all that. Sure. And so it looks romantic from our vantage point. Right, 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 right. That's a really good point. Well, you know, it's funny because you say that. And, you know, I was going to tell you that as far as cowboys go, I kind of have all the credentials, Bill, because I'm a pretty good shot with a gun. I've worn a cowboy hat. I've herded uh, live bighorn sheep out of necessity. Of course, I've ridden a horse. Uh, and I get irate and want to uh, to have a duel with people on a regular basis. So I'm kind of a cowboy. <laughs> hey, hey, if you lived 150 years ago, you might fit right into the old I, west. Somebody I, might have written a book about you. <laughs> no, it's true. Well, and I'll tell you what. And 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 before we get on to the individual people, I got to tell you, I really think if we could reinstate duels in kind of the way that it was in the Wild West, you would you'd get rid of a lot of jerks. I'll tell you, L.A. is a really funny city to live in, and there's a lot of people who. There's a lot of like people talk a big game out here, but I think if if there was a threat that you could call them on it and have a showdown with them, a lot of that I think they would restore the peace in a lot of ways. Hey, hey, that might be. And of course, the dueling thing, you know, the uh, sort of came out of the colonial period, and particularly in the South, where they had the dueling codes and so forth. But by the time they got to the old West, to that post. Civil War period you've talked about. Yeah. Time they got to that, the duels were very informal. It was just whoever got to his gun first, you know, and they did <laughs> sure. not have uh, what the movies have the the business of facing off in the street. Right. <laughs> I'll meet you there at noon, you know, and we'll yeah. see who draws the fastest. Yeah. It didn't go that way at all. Right. I, I, that book I told you about, my Encyclopedia of Western Gunfighters, uh-huh. uh, it, it handles. Uh, there are almost 600 gunfights portrayed in the book, some 260 uh, gunfighters, and uh, about um, almost 600 gunfights. And you just, there's just almost none of that business of the face-off. Right. You know, just whoever grabbed his gun first started shooting away and didn't wait to see how fast the other guy could draw. Right. That fast draw thing was a thing that the movies introduced in the early 1900s. Well, and, and, and just as a teaser, because I do want to talk about Wild Bill Hickok, but he is credited with the first, what, what you're kind of referring to as the quick draw duel. And he's credited with having that, that first quick draw duel with Davis Tutt, which is a famous Yeah, shooter. Dave Tutt in uh, Springfield, Missouri. And he, he, that duel that they fought, if you, if, you know, they met each other at a prescribed time mm-hmm. and started banging away. And that duel is the exception that proves the rule. Right, 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 um, right. You know, the rest of his fights were just grab a gun and shoot somebody. Right. And uh, he was in, uh, Hickok was in eight gunfights and killed seven men and wounded others and was himself wounded a few times. And he was regarded as the prince of the pistoliers. And that's the only time that he ever had one of those face-downs, face-offs, and almost everybody else is the same way. Billy the Kid, certainly a huge reputation for that. He was just gun crazy. And uh, in the last four years of his life, from the time he was 17 until he was 21, he was involved in uh, 16 encounters of one sort or another, but none of them were face-offs. You know, they were ambushes. They were running fights in the countryside. He was involved in at least one pitched battle. 
and he, you know, he just shot another guy in a saloon, uh, and and uh, and uh, you know, golly, who's in who's in fifteen or sixteen gunfights? In a four-year period, right. <laughs> well, not guy, anymore, Bill. <laughs> this, this guy loved loved to go to his guns, yeah, no and he killed four guys during that time. Yeah. And uh, Hickok, remember, killed seven in just eight gunfights. Right. And uh, and but these guys were willing to go to their guns, but there was there was almost no element of the old Southern duel in there, mm-hmm. except as I say for that Hickok at Springfield thing, right. and, and in Springfield, Missouri, and then. And then there's just not much else. There is an occasional, there's an occasional fight in which this guy goes for his gun and another guy's right in front of him. But uh, the 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 fast draw thing, we got that from the movies. The movies introduced that. It's exciting. And they introduced the what's called the Buscadero rig, the gun rig that you tie down low on your thigh, and that was uh, connected by a sort of a loop device to your gun belt well you'll look in vain for pictures of those buscadero rigs that were so familiar in the movies you'll look in vain for them in old photographs right. uh, that again that was a hollywood device uh, to make the fast draw a contest uh, you know who can be a split second faster and since you fired guns yourself mm. you know full well you might draw that gun half a second faster than the other guy but then you've got to hit him. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, you yeah, know? It's not easy. So you can get your shot off first, but you're allowed to miss. And, right. uh, well, and, you and so the- it's, a, it's an interesting uh, chemistry to the thing. And movies and TVs did very much to uh, influence our view of these, of these gunfighters. And we, the, the gunfighters continue to fascinate us. Because again, there's that life and death conflict. Same thing Shakespeare depended upon for drama. <laughs> right. No, that's true. And so, I, I, what I like to do is I like to take situations and put myself like if I was in those situations, what would I do? Like for example, if I was ever put in prison, I would become probably one of the guys who was able to get people things from the outside. I've just always thought about this. If I was in a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> okay. like what, what yeah. you know, I would probably be a, a scout, is my guess. Um, so if I'm in the Wild West, I've always wanted – I didn't want to be a gunfighter because I don't want to – I don't want to – I don't obviously want to kill people, and that's kind of what they do. But I always wanted to be a fast draw so that I could probably run my mouth without getting killed, right? That would probably be what I want to do. <laughs> so what did it take at the time? Because these aren't – modern guns are, are much – obviously much easier to shoot. What, what was it like – to be, what did it take to be a real quick draw gunfighter in the West? Well, nobody, n- nobody did it much. Um, the, all kinds of people. Hickok, for instance, frequently wore his guns butts forward, either in two holsters or in a sash. Mm. Whatever he felt could he could get. Other guys wore shoulder holsters. Other guys stuck their guns in a hip pocket or in a coat pocket. The equipment was unlike what I was talking about, the Buscadero rigs. The equipment Mm -hmm. did not lend itself to the fast draw. And since they weren't having any fast draw contests anyway, anywhere in the West, I mean, if you got mad at somebody, you pulled your gun out from pocket or 
or whatever you had it in yeah. and tried to get off as many shots as you could before he got you. Right. And if, if, right. uh, if he had a shotgun and you have a pistol, well, he's not going to wait <laughs> right. to go get a pistol. You know, until, <laughs> you know, he's going to try to blow you away with a shotgun right. or with the rifle. And they often preferred the long guns uh, to pistols simply because they were more accurate. Right. So you just didn't have that, and you didn't have very many guys making their living with a gun unless you consider a, um, uh, you know, a lawman making his living with his gun. Well, he generally doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got all these career lawmen who never did shoot anybody or who shot two people or something uh, during a long career in law enforcement. But they didn't go around drawing their guns every time they saw somebody. And by the same token, (laughs) outlaws did indeed make their living with their guns, but that's because they were robbing a bank or something and and might shoot somebody down who's trying to apprehend them. Right. Uh, But the, the quick draw thing... And that business of these guys making a living as a professional gunfighter, that simply didn't exist. There were guys who called themselves stock detectives or something, and they would they would creep around and do some of that. But, you know, you, you get the idea from the old television show that there were these guys that had shot 32 men or something, you know, mm-hmm. but in the course of their career. It was a regular thing for them, and that simply didn't happen. Well, and, and you bring in it so it's it's there's one guy that comes to mind that I want to get to who was killing Jim Miller who was as I was saying, <laughs> he was he was the exception for, for the road. I know I keep bringing he up was, these exceptions I do know that I'm not trying to catch killer. you yeah but he was yeah because what's crazy about him is that he was essentially like a serial killer in the wild west really i mean he's an right. assassin for hire but I, i'm sure he was killing people on the side you know for sheer pleasure well I don't I don't know how much sheer pleasure he got, but I'll tell you what, he he would indeed kill somebody who got his ire and he was a gun for hire. Uh the the best biography of Miller is called Shotgun for Hire. Hmm. He was uh nicknamed Killer Miller or Killing Jim Miller. And uh and he was known to to, to you know, just murder people and and he's you know, he 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 got fees for these people. He, he said on one occasion, I've lost my notch stick on Mexicans that I've killed along the border. And, uh, and he was just, he was a psychopath. And, um, and of course he eventually got hanged, um, for, he, he assassinated one guy too many, but yeah, he made his living by the gun to a certain extent. Tom Horn did that, uh, to a lesser extent. Horn wasn't kill crazy like Miller was, but he didn't have any compunctions against it. And um, and there were some other guys. There was a guy uh, that said for three hundred dollars, I'll blow away anybody <laughs> with a double barrel shotgun. Wow. And he was the one who got killed himself. But but Miller was the the principal person uh, who really did make a living using his gun. Again, the exception that proved the rule. Because he had enough reputation and he charged enough and so forth that he that he actually did that. In the meantime, his wife ran a boarding house in Fort Worth, and that's where he would stay between jobs. And um, and he was a cold blooded boy. I mean, he was a snake. 
uh, you know, he was really bad news. He's an, he's an interesting character for a couple of different reasons. Um, number one, as you mentioned, um, he was a killer for hire, but he openly advertised that he would kill people, you know, $150 per kill. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. and, and when, and when he was, you know, go up for, you know, when he would get caught and captured, he would threaten jurors. Um, you know, he's killed mm-hmm. witnesses, lawyers to stay out of yes, trouble. Indeed. And yes, he, indeed. And this is, and even like when he started, I'm going backwards in time. Um, but, but even when he started out, it was kind of interesting because his, his parents died and he was sent to live with his grandparents. They were <laughs> murdered. Uh, he yeah. was the suspect, you know. He was he got away, yeah. and then he went to My live little with Jim. <laughs> and then he went to live with his with his with his sister. His, his you know, um, well, his parents were. I think his mom was still alive. Him, he and his mom went to live with his sister and his sister's husband. And Jim killed the the husband, his brother in law. Yeah, uh, while he was sleeping on a hammock. Yeah, blew <laughs> him away. And 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 so, so you got that. But then he joined the Methodist Church and was known as Deacon Jim. So, like, there's that whole weird, like, Well, that was through his wife. His wife was raised a churchgoer, and she got, she got Miller to come, you know, when he was in Fort Worth between jobs where he'd go to church with her. And so people did call him Deacon Jim, but I, I'm, I don't think there's much question of which direction he went when he, <laughs> no, no, right. when, when he, when he <laughs> expired. I'll tell you another guy. Who did that? And uh, and and was boy, did he use his gun beginning when he was fifteen? You know, like Miller started killing people when he was a kid, and that's John Wesley Harden of right. Texas fame. Yeah, and Harden was just again another kill crazy uh, kid uh, who became a kill crazy adult. And my goodness, he I don't know how many guys he killed. He claimed to have killed forty some odd. He did not kill that many. It's really pretty easy to find out how many they kill because because killings did not go unnoticed, uh, whether they were recorded in court or not. You know, you knew that Harden had killed this guy and this guy, but he killed a lot of guys, right. uh, perhaps as many as nineteen or so, and um, and he did that until he got finally caught uh, down in Florida when he was still in his twenties, and he spent the next seventeen years in prison, and when he got out, he was in his forties. And an interesting thing happened. He gravitated to El Paso shortly after getting out of prison. Somehow he got, he read for the bar and got admitted to the bar as a lawyer, for crying out loud. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I, have, I happen to have one of his cards. Uh, that You know, John Wesley Arden, lawyer, attorney. Or like an original card? Like an original business yeah, card? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a business card out in El Paso. John Wesley Arden, attorney at law. I've been to his office. He had an upstairs office, yeah. <laughs> but he was a gambling fellow from day one, and when he was he was young, he started drinking, and he kept drinking all his life, except in prison, I guess. And um, he uh, he he, uh, he he encountered situations when he was in El Paso that when he was a kid, he would have gone to his guns and killed the guy right off the and and. It never happened. He never went to his guns in those last few years of his life out there, and uh, and he's the one that got killed. And I've I've always thought, well, boy, I don't know, something happened to him. You know, he was a wild child when he was a teenager and in his twenties, and he'd get a little bit liquored up, and boy, he'd shoot, he'd just shoot, shoot you as look at you, and he went to his guns all the time. But then, very interestingly. The guy, I guess age got him, you know, and he got into his 40s, got out of prison, 
And he didn't, he got in those same situations and he never went to his guns once in those last few years. And as a result, he got killed. And, and he was the one who did kill, who did the killing uh, during the early years of his life and a lot of it. And he, he and, he and Miller would, would be the two, I would say that went to their guns the most readily. And don't forget Billy, the kid with right. those 16 fights in, uh, in uh, four years, that's a lot. Yeah. Well, I want to mention one other thing about killing Jim Miller before we move away from him, because he sure. he did this one really cool thing, is that he had <laughs> essentially an old-style bulletproof vest. Like, he would wear, yep. like, yep. steel underneath yep. him, like Clint Eastwood in, in <laughs> I forget what, I think it's the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but um, he, I mean, that's crazy. Like, he had a bulletproof vest to stop him from getting killed. That was killing Jim Miller. And when you bring up John Wesley Harden, now this, this is kind of one of the cool things about the West, is because we're talking about the these mythical figures out there, but they're all kind of connected. So we mentioned Wild Bill Hickok, and I want to go back to him because he had a really cool life. Um, but John Wesley Harden kind of befriended Hickok when Hickok was in Kansas. So they knew each other, and and John Wesley Harden shot a guy for snoring. I think it was accidentally shot him, but he nah, shot him. Nah, that didn't happen. That didn't it happen. didn't happen? <laughs> nah, he didn't, he didn't do this. <laughs> Oh well, it, it, I mean, it's, it, a, it's a great part a legend, of his legend, but right. it didn't. It, he didn't do that. Okay, well, nonetheless, he knew Wild Bill Hickok, and yeah. and and so that that that's known. And so, but John Wesley Harden was shot by a guy named John Selman, who was another another famous uh, shootist. And then that's John, right, he was. And yeah. then John Selman was shot by George Scarborough, who was a famed lawman. So all these people who were like kind of shooting each other, they were all legends in their own right. It's kind yes, of strange. Indeed. And indeed, Selman and uh, and Harden are buried in the same cemetery in El Paso, with inside oh, wow. of each other. Oh yeah. wow! <laughs> and uh, Killing Jim Miller is buried in the same cemetery as Luke Short, another well-known gunman. And Luke Short killed. Um, uh, a guy named uh, Longhair Jim Courtright, and he too is buried in that same cemetery in Fort Worth. Wow! And so, yes, there was an in- interconnection between these guys. They knew one another, and again, they th- these were fellows who were not afraid to go to their guns. And I suppose that's what distinguished them. A lot of guys had guns, but you know, uh, there were there were ordinances against guys wearing guns in in the cow towns and stuff because they were trying to keep the killing down. Right. Uh, in the cattle towns, for instance, they didn't want, you know, they knew cattle buyers wouldn't come to a place where they might get gunned down by some liquored up cowboy. And right. they did have ordinances against trying to, how extensively were they enforced? I don't know, but, uh, but, um, you know, they tried to keep it down. <laughs> they just didn't much. Certain guys would go to their guns and, right. and, and, uh, and pop away at each other. And, and Hickok certainly was a leader. You know, they called him the Prince of Pistoliers, and uh, again, only only eight gunfights, but seven dead men. <laughs> right. And, you know, that guy was something else. He was really, really good. Now, uh, both Hickok and Hardin loved to show off their expertise with pistols, and b- both of them learned to shoot with cap and ball pistols, which are great big, heavy uh, shooting irons. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Hickok was a large man with large hands, and boy, he could you know twirl the guns and and it was it was a heck of a marksman, and so was was Hardin. Hardin had just written his autobiography, 
And he and the woman he was living with, they were about to take that show on the road, and Hardin was practicing constantly uh, with his six guns because he knew that on stage people would enjoy seeing him twirl those guns around uh, because he was an expert at it. Um, oh, you know, the uh, wonderful movie Tombstone oh, has yeah. an excellent scene with the, the Johnny Ringo character whirling those guns right. around and so forth. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. those guys did that in real life. It was something to see. And uh, both Hickok and uh, Ann Harden were very good at that. And people liked to watch them. Well, it's funny you mentioned um, the show show business, and maybe that's why he went to his guns less, as he wanted to get into show business. It's the thing that, uh, you know, that's what everyone wants to do, I guess. Well, I don't know. I, I think I, I, the, the, the showbiz part of Hardin's deal was he was just trying to sell those books. He wasn't doing any good as a lawyer, and he was drinking, and, he, you know, it was just a way to make some money. Right. He did write this book up, and he was going to go on stage with it as soon as it got printed up. And he was going to try to make stage appearances and twirl his guns for people because people have been watching him twirl twirl those guns ever since he was a kid. Yeah, it's pretty and they, cool stuff. And he, he he knew that he was he was a sight to be seen with that. And Hickok was exactly the same way. Right. No, it, it's true. Um, and and you mentioned Tombstone, which is it is one of my favorite movies. Now I am aware that there's a lot of Hollywood stuff going on with that movie, so I, I'm I, I do know that. But it spawned some really cool characters again, who are all interrelated with some of these other guys. And of course, Wyatt Earp is the number one guy in there, who's right. yes, a, a big lawman, and 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 the Earp family, and the you know that movie kind of the the the. The denouement of that movie is really the shootout at the OK Corral, which kind of thrusts the Wyatt on this redemption ride, you know. Um, but but tell me a little bit about Wyatt Earp. Like, what's the real story behind him and his family? Well, Wyatt was, um, you know, they were very very tight as frontier families often were, and they might quarrel with each other, you know, growing up as kids and stuff. But boy, did they rally these large families! I saw that with my father's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they would bump heads with each other, brothers and sisters. But my goodness, don't let outsiders get into it. And so there was intense family loyalty with that Earp bunch, and that was not unusual uh, in the frontier. And um, and these 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 you know they started making their living wearing a badge. And that was what they were pretty good at because they were they were not afraid to use their guns. I don't know what how great they were. You know, how, could Ringo really twirl those guns the way he did in the movie? I have right. no idea about Ringo, but I do know uh, about about Hickok and Harden, and they certainly could. Right. And uh, these guys were just not afraid to go to their guns. And boy, you know, what got a couple of brothers shot. You know, one was shot to death, and mm-hmm. the other was badly wounded, uh, so that he couldn't use his arm anymore. And um, and uh, you know, Wyatt took up for him, and he he got after the family enemies. And um, he was, um, you know, everybody who knew him, he was not a fun-loving guy. He was dead serious about a lot of stuff, <laughs> right. and he had a lot of a lot of courage. Didn't drink, and another thing about him was that he was, from the time he was a young man, he was a kind of a lanky guy and had long arms, and he was a terrific fist fighter, mm-hmm. apparently. Right. And uh, and so he was not afraid of personal encounters, not at all. 
And uh, so, you know, and he didn't go around shooting as many people. The the exaggeration in Tombstone is that redemption ride where they mm. killed all these other guys, and they, they really went off the deep end with that. Other than that, my goodness, they really stuck to the facts. Uh, gun Gunfight historians really enjoy, you know, that movie. And, you know, we're not unrealistic. We know that a movie... A motion picture, right. a commercial motion picture, is not supposed to be a documentary. Right. And right. you know, you you feel like, hey, if if they get, you know, a third of it right, well, boy, you walk out of there saying great. And what they did get right was the costuming, and the, um, you know, the 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 lack of buscadero rigs, for instance. The gun rigs are indeed accurate. And if you may recall that Kevin Costner came out with a. Uh, a wide Earp movie at almost exactly the same time as Tombstone came out. And those guys had the Buscadero rigs and all that. Oh. And everybody just hooted at the, at, at the kind of gun rigs they were wearing and at the, at the style of hats they were wearing. The people who did their work in Tombstone certainly did their homework, the costuming people and so forth. They did their, they, they really did their homework on the, kind of gun rigs they had on the kind of costumes they had and uh, the wider people just rented stuff you know <laughs> just whatever was available including the gun rigs and so wow. they that movie never had the reputation that tombstone did and uh, they they pretty much nailed it and including the set by the way the set looks just the movie said it's almost uncanny how accurate it looks uh compared to the old tombstone and uh, so they did their homework in every way in that movie, and and uh, that is why it is a legendary movie. You know, they really captured not just the herbs, but the time and the town and so forth. Well, it's interesting because I would think Tombstone was the more Hollywood movie. You know, the Kevin Costner Wyatt Earp movie, I think, was it was sold as the more realistic version. But it's interesting that you say, th- <laughs> but they, it wasn't. Yeah, it's, it's you know, really you know what was re- truly realistic about that movie. And it is a shame. You know, Dennis Quaid lost 43 pounds to pay to play Wyatt Earp. You know, the cadaverous, <laughs> you know, he had tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, when you see that Wyatt Earp, uh, excuse me, the Doc Holliday portrayal oh, Doc Holliday, in Val the movie Kilmer. Wyatt Earp, you are as close to seeing the real thing as you ever will. Quaid oh, really? was just fantastic i mean he truly was now you know val kilmer stole the show as wide earp he had all these great lines and he delivered them beautifully and so forth and he really stole the show but he's pretty you know he's a pretty uh uh, robust looking guy in that Mm -hmm. movie Mm -hmm. he coughs every now and then just as kirk douglas coughed Occasionally, when he was playing Wide Earp in a in a much earlier movie, you know, sure. so he, everybody's supposed to understand that he's sickly. And uh, then in an even earlier Wide Earp movie, Victor Mature, who was the big Arnold Schwarzenegger of that day, he'd cough every now and then into a into a handkerchief, even though he looked like he'd play NFL football. You know? right. And 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 uh, and so Dennis Quaid, boy, gave gave a performance as close. You know, you see that movie, and you're seeing wide. You're seeing uh, Doc Holliday. That, that was a guy. Wow. And shame he didn't get. I don't think he was even nominated for a a supporting actor role, and he became it. And again, did so by losing the weight and 
and it was it was quite uncanny. If if you really knew the guys, you think, "Wow, look at that boy!" Wow. And he he stole the show in that movie too. The Wyatt Earp character, excuse me, the the Doc Holliday character usually does, uh, but. Uh, but boy, he he did it with considerable expertise. Well, Doc Holliday is a pretty colorful character. Um, yeah. Because I mean, so was he? Was he? The thing that I was having trouble f- finding out about him was was he as accurate? I mean, because especially in Tombstone, if people are scared. I mean, because he's such a quick draw, and especially when they do the OK, you know, the shootout at the OK Corral, you know, he's blasting away at split second speed. Was he really that good? I know he was a gambler. No, and a gambler. no, no. He, he was in. Uh, no, Doc Holliday wasn't in but a handful of uh, gunfights <laughs> in his life. Killed two guys, I think, you know, and and shot some others. But he 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 was not nearly as active a gunfighter as people as people have made him out. He was um, he was in um, I believe a total of eight gunfights. Well, that's a lot of a lot of gunfights. We survived. And he them. killed two guys, yeah. and then he helped to dispatch a couple of others. I would call them assists. If you will, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. people are shooting away, and this guy dies. And did Holiday fire the fatal bullet, or did uh, one of the other Earp brothers fire it? I don't know. So, right. so uh, you know, he he killed two guys, and he got a couple of assists. Sure, that's fair. And he was in eight gunfights. And so, uh, no, 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 he wasn't the the the, the legendary thing, you know, uh, that the movies always make him make him out to be. He wasn't kill crazy like like the kid. You know, Billy the Kid, or like Miller, who's psycho, or right. or Harden in his younger years, but uh, but he was obviously a very dangerous character. I mean, eight gunfights—that's a lot. That's a good amount. Yeah, you got to survive. Yeah, it's eight more than I've been in. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Sure. Well, and so he was. So he was from a wealthy family, and he was an actual dentist um, who contracted tuberculosis yeah, that's from right. his mother. He right? got a he got a dental certificate in Baltimore. His mother had uh, tuberculosis. And probably that's where he got it. He came down with it about the time that he graduated from dental school. Mm, and okay. um, that's he set up his first dental practice in Dallas because the docs told him to go west and uh, try to get in, a, in an arid climate. And he came out to Dallas, had a, you know, we know the address of his dental offices and everything because he had an ad in the paper. Wow. And, and But he drank. And he, uh, <laughs> he got in a gunfight. Right there, as a young man, he uh, nobody got killed, but I think he winged a, a sassy bartender, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and he got into other things as well. And so he he was certainly a dangerous man, no question about it. Just not quite as dangerous as the movies make out. Sure, sure. Well, he's he's a great sidekick, you know. I mean, like, yes, he is. When you yes, talk about that's if, correct. If, if and you, as I say, he steals every movie he's in. Sure, <laughs> you know, yeah. Victor Mature. Uh, stole my darling Clementine from Henry Fonda. Yeah. Uh, Kirk Douglas stole, uh, uh, y- y- you know, from the wide, wide Earp character, Burt Lancaster, and then of course Val Kilmer and yeah. and uh, Dennis Quaid stole stole their movies also. It's a good, it's a good part. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating character. Yeah, and they do. They always do a good job with that. No, he's he's great. I mean, because you got to have you know, White Earp's the stoic. You know, he's the stoic. Leader, yeah, you and he be. was in real life too. Right. You know that, real that was man. his nature, and so they 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 get him right, and 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 he's an upright guy, very often on the side of law and order, and and um, 
and he was known to be a dangerous guy. Remember, he was <laughs> people scared of him because of his fist fighting. Sure, yeah. Uh, sure. You know, he whoop up on folks. Sure. Uh, you know, he didn't have to go to his law to his gun. And right. then when he went to his gun, he was not afraid of confrontations right. with fists or guns. Right. And certainly not if his family was involved. My goodness. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because Wyatt Earp is the kind of guy who was always on the side of law and order. Doc Holliday, you know, you could make the argument either way. <laughs> but there were lots of people, um, including Henry Plummer, who were really interesting to me because they played both sides of the coin. And you see this a lot in, in a lot of these Wild West figures that's, where they were outlaws exactly true. and they became marshals and back and forth. The second book I wrote was a biography of a fellow named Henry Brown. And Brown kept going back and forth on both sides of the law. And he would wear a badge for a while. On one occasion, he was appointed a stock detective because everybody knew what a good horse thief he was, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Take one to catch one. And, And he did that thing. He hired his guns on both sides of the Lincoln County War. And yet, not long afterwards, he pinned on a deputy sheriff's badge in Tascosa, and um, he um, he tamed the last cow town on the Chisholm Trail, Caldwell. Now, he had to kill a couple of guys to do it, and he was one of those two gunmen, and um, and he he was a quiet fella. He was a small fella, but boy, was he good with his guns. And yet, there he was, and he was being paid very well for those days. He was getting $150 a month as Marshal of Caldwell, and yet he coerced his deputy and a couple of other guys to go with him and, and, uh, and, and, and rob a bank in another town. And he wound up killing the bank president, and his deputy killed the clerk, and they got uh, caught and lynched. Uh, uh, later. So here's this guy, and he was just 26 when he was lynched, but here's this guy who goes back and forth between both sides of the law, actually wearing badges, you know, from time to time. And, um, and that, and that pattern did happen. Again, it takes one to catch one. And they also figured if a guy was a pretty good gunman, why not pin a deputy's badge on him? Right. Um, you know, why, but that's a pretty skilled guy right. to have on your side. And uh, and so that boy, that was not a unique pattern in the West. They they did a lot of that kind of stuff. Well, and it's uh, interesting because when you think about when people rob like a stagecoach or a train or a bank or whatever, you know, it's not like today where the money's insured and then the bank people just yeah. let the money go. If you got yeah. robbed in the wild, it was gone. That money was <laughs> the money's gone. gone. Yeah. yeah. And so if they robbed a guy's bank, well, then everybody's going to deposit in that right. bank right. Right. all right. over yeah. town. You know, right. their their money's just vanished. Yeah. Which you kind of, you know, and this is, it's funny, I just want to quickly give a definition of lynching, because I think it has a, a very racial um, attachment now, a stigma, but that's not at all what lynching was. Not at all. Lynching but, was basically uh, carrying out a, a, a trial and execution within minutes of, of you know, capturing yeah, something, that, right? Yeah, that's right. They and, and of course the 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 racial overtone of it has to do with the old South. Right. You know, there right. were many many racial lynchings, particularly in the wake of the Civil War. Right. And so during the Reconstruction period, you had a lot of that. At the very same time, right. uh, they you know they were going after criminals as well. Of course. And you see some figures on that. There was a great lynching that took place in Belton, Texas. Um, Belton is a county north of Austin, and um, the western part of that county is a very broken country, 
and offered good hideouts to bad guys. Mm -hmm. And so all kinds of guys had been doing stuff, you know, and they're mostly stock thievery, and they'd steal a horse or cow or something, and they'd hide out in that broken half, the western half of Bell County. And um, it was really getting bad, and they actually authorized the building of a two-story brick uh, jail. And it had a huge holding cell in it. And that building still stands, by the way. Hmm. And this incident I'm telling you about took place in 1874. Wow. And what happened is that finally some guy axe murdered his wife and disappeared. And they decided, all right, that's enough. And this was affecting surrounding counties. So they had an enormous posse of hundreds of guys, and they w- had a sweep. And they caught, sure enough, as they swept through that western area they caught 10 guys they <laughs> threw them in that holding cell yeah. and i think everybody understood that this was going to happen one of the guys incidentally got sick and they put him in another room so now when the mob arrives that very night um they they burst into the jail and there were nine guys in that holding cell and instead of the traditional thing of hanging them you know taking them out and hanging mm-hmm. them they stuck their guns through the bars and opened up and they gunned down all nine guys. Wow. And, um, you know, that's a lynching to enforce the law. That is extra legal law. And that goes back, actually, you mentioned the 1700s when we started talking Mm -hmm. uh, nearly an hour ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that, that regulator kind of a thing, that mentality started during the breakdown of order Prior to the American Revolution, you know, we had a lot of riots and stuff, such as the Boston Massacre and Boston Tea Party, for about 10 years. And, and as British authority breaks down, what are we going to do keep, to keep the law? And that's the kind of thing that they did. And there was actually just two years later, there was another incident uh, in, in, uh, in Meridian, Texas, in which these two brothers, who were ne'er-do-wells, they were accused of murdering a guy and robbing him, a, a local storekeeper. And uh, so a mob, they, they lured the sheriff away from town with a letter that his mother was dying in another town. And then a mob of about 100 men stormed the jail. Only about 50 of them could get in there, and they stuck their guns through the bars and shot these guys. And that's wow. not lynching. I've just finished a book about John Chisholm. And Chisholm had an enormous open-range ranch, and it was in Lincoln County, which was relatively lawless. And uh, he he got uh, he he lost I don't know how many cattle uh, and horses. And so whenever he caught a bad guy, and sometimes he led pursuit, they hanged them right there wherever they could find. One time, uh, they they had to. They had no trees around, and they propped up a wagon tongue, which has an iron ring on the end of it, and they threaded a rope through that iron ring, and they put it around this guy's neck, and they hoisted him up, which doesn't break his neck, and he strangled to death uh, on that wagon tongue. And so the lynching was a way, as an extra-legal way, to try to enforce some sort of order. Sure. And so in the West, it was not so much racial as it was, as I say, extra legal. 
Yeah, well, and it's funny because, you know, it, it's, you know, not to go back to this, I know I get on, I'll try to stay off my soapbox a lot, but it's funny how throughout history, you know, especially now we talk about, we hold the Constitution up as like, oh, you know, this, this, and this, and this is what the Founding Fathers meant. And it's like, well, you know, what you're talking about, like these lynchings were held up and they're, you know, there's no speedy trial. They're, it's just you, people are accused and then they're hanged right there, you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's, there's that's no right. speedy trial, there's no Bill of Rights, and these <laughs> yeah. guys are citizens, you know. <laughs> rights have been trampled since happened. they've been written. Near where I live, they had a they had a blood feud called the Regulator Moderator War in this in this part of Texas, uh-huh. and uh, these uh, these two brothers had, had murdered a, a guy, and they caught him and brought him back to town. And by the time they got back, about three hundred people had gathered. It was a yep. log ca- the county seat was a log cabin village, yep. and they uh, they brought him in, and the and the trial so called. Was they voted now? Not the women folk, you know. <laughs> of course, the women not. don't yeah. get a vote yeah. in the 1840s, yeah. and the men voted 174 to nothing to hang them, and that was that the was jury. It. Yeah, <laughs> and they and they took them out of town and hung them on a on a big old oak limb. That's, I mean, yeah, it's 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 crazy, like how yeah, I mean, and that was frontier justice, you know. I mean, this stuff yeah, happened, and there's right. nothing you could really do about it. And especially when we went back to when you rob a bank, you rob everyone. Well, if you rob a bank, you've just ticked off the entire town. Entire town may only be a hundred people, but those hundred people are going to come after you, and they're going to get their money. Back. You're exactly right. Yes, and this was the only way they could exact some sort of justice too, and they did. And the other thing was these frontier counties; they didn't have the resources to have proper. Even a lot of times, they didn't even have a jail. Right. You know, much less all the courts and all that. And they didn't have time to do that sort of thing. And so the legal procedure might get people off the hook, and they didn't want them off the hook. Right. They wanted them dead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's just, I mean, just how, cor- I mean, we talk about how corrupt our political and, and judicial system is now, and it's like, well, back then, it was it was rigged. I mean, we didn't even get into, you know, the hanging judge, Isaac Parker, you know, I mean, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean there's tons yeah. of, uh, it's I, I love my jury with 174 to nothing. Yeah, Hang that's, them. <laughs> right, that's, that's, with that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> and and you know people at the time thought it was a democracy you know and it's not you know it is but it isn't you know you can't well, decide to tell it, someone it was majority vote. rule <laughs> right. that, that's democratic <laughs> yeah i mean it is 174 to zero by definition yeah it is <laughs> bill we are out of time uh, this has been fascinating but do you have time to stick around for like 10 more minutes to talk about the end of the west and get into henry Plummer working both sides of the law Boy, I'd love nothing more than to get to talk about this kind of stuff. It would right. be a pleasure. All right, so so if people want to listen, stick around. We're going to talk with, with Bill a little bit more. Um, so we got to end this episode. What what? Where can people find your book? Where can people find you if they're in Texas, you being the Texas state historian? Um, where can people find you in your books? I, I, I am in Carthage, Texas, uh, which is in deep east Texas, except for when I travel, which is much of the time. And uh, my books are, you know, a lot of well, those books. I've been writing books for 40-some-odd years, and a lot of them are out of print, but they can be obtained over Amazon. And that first book of mine, that Encyclopedia of Western Gunfighters, it is still in print. It was published in, eight, in 1979 by the University of Oklahoma Press, and it is still in print here nearly four decades later. I'm very proud of that book. Wow. It's been translated twice into German and stuff. And, and so, so, you know, the books can be found here and there. 
Well, I'll have links to to those books on the website. Um, fascinating read. Um, Bill O'Neill, Texas State historian. Thank you for being on the show today. This has been fascinating. It's been a great pleasure for me. Bigger pleasure for me. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production, and it's hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn all about this new episode, the guest here, previous guests, and to listen to every single previous episode, uh, fascinatingnouns.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page so you can follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you should check out my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I sit down with superhero scientist Dr. Michael Denon, aerospace engineer Ben Siebser, and I, the analytical mastermind, and we take fictional science and make it a reality. So check that out on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And if you like that, if you like both podcasts, you like everything that I do, go to danieljglenn.com as your hub for everything regarding the fascination. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.